0: Welcome to Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Berl-Lumlod and, and with me, Richard Allen. This is our 15th episode of 2022 and we thought we would spend it discussing a difficult question but also one that's quite interesting and that is how, how can we work as policy people with academics? What's the sort of interface between policy and academia and research and science and how do we deal with all of the many preconceptions around how that actually uh, is working today uh, when, we, uh, when we set out to, to, build, uh, to build more knowledge, essentially, about what's happening? What do you think is, you know, let's start with a few key questions that you've run across. Yeah.
1: I mean, we, we should recognize it's a tense and difficult area for big tech in particular. Yeah, you know there is a lot of criticism from the academic community that big tech is too closed, is 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 not willing to share the kind of information data that academics need to do their research, and and I mean let's, let's sort of take a sort of classic example one that I've been working on with this organization called the European Digital Media Observatory, but really which is focused on disinformation, and you would think that academics' interest in this subject area and companies. We'd have very closely aligned incentives. They yeah. want to, they want to get to the real understanding of what disinformation is happening and what impact it has on the world, and then think about what you can do about it. But actually it's one of the areas that's been most tense and difficult where where academics really do feel very strongly that the companies are hiding things effectively, that they're unwilling to give things up. And where the companies often feel that the academics have an agenda. That the academics are trying to prove how bad they are. That their work will not be neutral, but will be coming from a point of, you know, pre- preconception that the companies are bad. And so you end up with this, as I say, this sort of real misalignment. They come together for a while. There'll be a new initiative where they're trying to work together, and then the suspicion will creep back in, and they'll splinter off apart.
0: Yeah, and so so let's go through the, the caricature first. So, sort of what is it that each side says about the other? Um, you know, if you're in a tech company, a new academic paper comes out that is highly critical of some of your practices or your products or. Uh, your uh, or the effect they have on certain groups. What yeah. what is that? What would you hear inside a tech company at that point?
1: I mean, it's, it's generally um, expressed as sort of the the, the the academic has been selective that they didn't have all the information that they needed, which is kind of ironic. As academic <laughs> will say, well, of course we don't, because you won't give it to us. But it's often it's often you know people inside the tech companies feel they have the complete picture, and that the academic has taken a kind of slice of what's going on out there. Without understanding that the full picture, and they have base their research on that, so it's, it's not representative. I remember a piece of research to do. I think it was the far right in Germany, and somebody produced some research. And it often gets a lot of take up. You imagine it's quite exciting. There's a yeah. you know, German election going on; everyone's really interested in the IFD day, and somebody produces some some research, kind of saying, I think frankly said, Facebook users are more likely to be far right. And again, the reaction internally was, look, that's just you know they've taken a tiny slice of data and are using that to draw conclusions that are much bigger than the data justifies. Uh, they haven't looked at it in the round. So it's often it'll be a criticism of either partial selectivity or sometimes just a methodology, that the, the academic methodology is inappropriate for the question being asked.
0: And if you shift that around then to mm-hmm. the academics, um, what do you think the academics typically would be saying about the big tech companies? Yeah. They issue this paper, there's pushback from the company.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean they'll say... We weren't given the data. We couldn't get the data, so we had to make do with what we could get hold of. The companies could be more open but are deliberately choosing not to. And, and they say that often their view is that companies are trying to cover up something bad that they know is going. So the, the hypothesis in this case would be, you know, the research hypothesis is people who use social media more are more likely to be far right from the example I cited. And so the work of some of the academics is, yes, the companies know that. (laughs) It's embarrassing for them. Therefore, they're trying to cover it up and they're refusing to give data because they want to kind of maintain that cover up.
0: It's interesting because what you're describing is an essentially non-cooperative research uh, relationship, right? In in which the researchers assume that the corporations are not going to want to cooperate with them. And so they assume that, uh, that the data that they need is there but they're just not given it. So what, what, Why do we end up in this non-cooperative relationship? Yeah. Do you
1: think? I mean I wish it evolved over time and uh, you know obviously my experience was in meta Facebook and, and actually in, in the early days there was a lot more openness, a lot more willingness yeah. to co- collaborate, academics were invited in, research papers were published but then bad stories came out and the company gradually withdrew into its shell. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, arguably the most infamous story is the Cambridge Analytica story, which in a sense was framed at least initially as an academic research institution wanting to collect data from the Facebook platform in order to do research about people's attitudes, obviously morphed into something else where they were trying to sell a service. Yeah, uh, But again, arguably... Like that's, you know, a lot of academics are encouraged to take their work into a spin out, but they morphed into something selling a service to politicians, became incredibly intense. And again, actually, as part of the scandal, people said, oh, oh but you gave these people permission, you know, to, to Facebook, that you gave some of these academics permission. Well, it's true that, you know, back in the day, somebody working for a psychological research centre in Cambridge, and some people in Facebook would engage with each other. And you know, quite innocently, they thought they were all just doing research. And some of the people would move between the companies. Good, good researchers, social psychologists and and so on would move into the companies because they needed those people. And then, as I say, over time, there there were repeated instances where the research publication was used to embarrass the companies in some way. And so then the companies start saying, look, we're going to narrow down the group of researchers we'll work with. We're going to put more conditions in place. And in some cases, get to the point where it, it becomes almost impossible, you know, to do the research unless you signed up to the kind of restrictive conditions that most academics don't want to do because then they they feel that their research is devalued. It's no longer independent.
0: All right, and then there's also we should recognize that there's a there's a problematic history with how companies have used research. Uh, if you if you go back, so one of the most famous examples is the tobacco industry that said, you know, we produce doubt, and the way they did that was through funding massive research studies that show that you know tobacco was not a problem, and there was no link between lung cancer and smoking, for example, which which turned out to be uh, blatantly false. So yeah. there's a history here of, of companies at some point also. Um, co-opting and working with research in a way that, uh, that was deeply destructive to, I think, the, the future relationship between research and companies. It's sort of, there's an old schism here between, between these two areas of society where we actually really need them to work together, right?
1: Uh, that's right. And, and that sort of history is actually an interesting one because that, that assumption that when a big and powerful company is paying for research, they're doing it in order to clean up their image in some way they've got malicious motives, I think is still there. And that underpins a lot of it. And again, I'm sure you had the experience as well, where I actually think genuinely quite innocently you as a company would see someone doing really good research that you thought was useful and you would want to fund them or support them in some way. And again, I, I saw quite a lot of that happening. But over time, more and more questions were asked. The assumption was it was the tobacco industry model that the only reason a big tech company would fund an academic institution is to further its own interests rather than in the interests yeah. of true research.
0: I mean, I mean, I think it even went to a point where if you found really good research that you thought was illustrative of a point that you wanted to make, but you hadn't funded it, uh, you were hesitant to send it out because you were worried that that would actually undermine the researcher's yeah. credibility, which it's is all, all, the, all the wrong way around. Right? You yeah. should be looking for research together in order to find... These are hard questions that we're working mm-hmm. with. Misinformation, you know, social influence, all of these are really hard questions and it requires that as many as people... As possible bring their brains to the table and we start thinking about it but but it's it's like it's there's something missing in terms of trust in this dialogue that makes that really really hard
1: yeah and and then you end up in these really challenging situations where um the taking of company money is assumed to be corrosive corrupting yeah. of the research It's no longer independent research At the same time, nobody else has the money and there's a general feeling of the... Or the data, to your point. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, and this feeling of, I think they call it the polluter pays principle. It's like, well, you know, you guys are pushing out the bad stuff, whatever it is. You're having the bad effect on society, so you should be paying for the research. Uh, So we want you to give the money, uh, but we don't trust anyone who takes the money. It was kind of a weird scenario we've gone into. And there's, again, through the... European uh, Digital Media Observatory work, I've, noticed, I've sort of tracked a, a development that took place where Google actually was giving quite a large amount of money, and, and I think they genuinely wanted to give it no strings attached. Yeah, And the foundation was set up, a structure has been created where researchers can apply for that money, and the people who assess their programs are independent, have nothing to do with Google. Um, but that's very difficult. I mean, it took a lot of work to create a structure that was seen yeah. as sufficiently independent. And even there, some people say, "Well, you know, you, you, nobody pays for for nothing." <laughs> and, you and choose probably...
0: to assessors as the criticism yeah, yeah. so that then, the... then comes across. And and I mean, it was quite clear quite early that the way to give research money in in a good way. And I think there, you know, ninety five percent of all of the research I've seen produced in in our industry is is <laughs> actually produced with a good intention. Yeah, uh, I think there is certainly someone who tries to make a point and tries to sort of get a research paper to support that. I I think that happens. We should be Mm -hmm. fair. But I also think that a lot of the money that's being given is given in such a way that you want to see if there's evidence for something you believe is true, and you want to find that out. So what we did very early on, I remember, was that we we took up and most tech companies had this, we took up a program of undirected uh, funding, which Mm -hmm. essentially said, here are good people doing good work. We want to make sure they can continue to do good work, so we'll give them money, and then we'll see what comes out of it. Now, here happens something else that is interesting. If you do that, you start to build credibility with the researchers, but then they publish something that is critical in some aspect yeah. of some work that the company does. And what happens at that point is that somebody in the company comes back to you and say, what are you doing funding yes. this person? And that's that's another kind of dynamic that, that also makes it difficult. Yeah. And Every piece of research produced with that undirected money uh, isn't something you, you're held responsible for.
1: Yeah, and, and we've seen it in companies, again, over time I think they're um, level of paranoia. I guess you know, but paranoia. <laughs> Paranoia—the belief that everyone is out to get you. But at a certain point, a lot of people are out to get you. That paranoia increases, and and you know you, uh, you get attacks on the company, some of which you think are you know completely inappropriate and and not well founded. The company starts to see all attacks in the same category, and to be able to say, look, no, no, this academic research that I funded or that we agreed to support is not one of those kind of off the wall. <clears throat> partial attacks is really good work.
0: It should inform our future actions and perhaps even the way we design and think about our products, right?
1: but it's really hard to say that to somebody who's already kind of feeling under the cost. And I think, again, particularly with the media dynamic, which comes into it, which, you know, the academic may have published some Really good substantive research, it may have led to a classic headline. <laughs> you know, uh, we used to love some of them, um, Facebook causes cancer. You know, oh, we, wow. that was a one. <laughs> uh, Facebook causes syphilis. That was another one. Oh, and, then, wow. uh, I mean, and again, you look at these, at least a we used to collect these news by headline. The Facebook causes cancer was um, researchers have shown that more screen time. Can possibly cause cancer with the rays from a cathode ray tube, whatever it is, and and therefore Facebook causes more screen time. Therefore, it causes more cancer. Now, and I the, want to hear about the syphilis. Oh, oh, That's yeah, yeah. to be very
0: questionable. <laughs> board,
1: I think it was um, Facebook users have more relationships, uh, uh-huh. uh, and therefore, because they have more relationships, and the rate of syphilis relates to the number of sexual partners you have. So, I just kind of put all that together, and you yeah. know, and so there's like there's bones of stuff in there, but it gets wrapped up into these headlines. And again, you can't control that. Once the research has done the work and they put it out in the wild, we see it every day. Some of the, shall we say, more uh, uh, headline chasing newspapers. Well,
0: and, <laughs> yeah, where the correlation is not causation seems to be a good reminder for a lot of researchers. It's yeah. yeah. often forgotten. Now, the the other dynamic on, um, on in this relationship occurs on the other side. And that's when uh, a researcher puts something out that is uh, quite good, but funded by a company. Yeah the other academics whoever not funded will then say of course you say that because you're funded by them so there is between academics there is also a certain tension when someone gets funds and funding to do something and someone else doesn't so um almost like a defensive move in the in the quite intense status game that is played in many academic institutions is to look down on the person that manages to attract corporate funds, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think this is probably true. Again, it's not unique to tech. I'm sure in pharma, in actually um, you know, materials and defense-related work and so on, there's a there's a whole set of different industries that push money into academia and a whole set of complications. Either I've not been in academia and I don't pretend to understand, but I think, again, if we're we're sort of sharing lessons here, it's very easy to blunder into that and not understand yeah. what you're doing. We've talked about non-governmental organizations the same. You can come along and say, you know, we got a load of money and we want to fund child safety, uh, and again, there's a complex web of relationships between lots of different child safety organizations. You come in with a bunch of money, you fund one and not the other. Uh, it can end up being really messy. And, yeah. and so I say, I think there's a lesson there, which is maybe to have good advice is to understand what you're getting into. And one of the problems you have at a tech company is that sort of instant reaction, that need for speed. Uh, something has happened, we need to fund some research in X. Again, misinformation would be a classic one after the 2016 elections, you know, we must fund this thing. We'll set something up and uh, Facebook set up something called Social Science One and we're going to put lots of money in and create a structure. Uh, there was a need to get on with it. And and actually it started, you know, it started well, but then, then it was upsetting a whole bunch of existing relationships. There were all sorts of things that hadn't been taken into account. I think it's ended up not delivering what was expected. In part, I think because I say it was... It was a, a you know spur of the moment. We must get on and build a something now. A
0: reactive,
1: yeah. let's build something now.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. But I also think it's fair to say that if you look back. Um, over the uh, almost two decades that we've spent in the tech policy sector. I think one, one thing, it has matured, right? There's mm. there's many solutions uh, available that are uh, still quite robust. One of the, the ones that I've found uh, worked best was when you were not the sole donor and you were giving to an institution and not an individual That's researcher. Right. Uh, those seem to be uh, ameliorating facts in the eyes of, of other academics. You were giving to this institution undirected funds, and you were telling the institution that here is the the range of topics I would like to see research on. Um, but then you allowed the institution to prioritize the funds, and you were not the only funder. So. If we're giving advice to our listeners, I think one of the—if you're thinking about funding research because you're really curious and you want to understand something—the way in which you structure that funding is going to be absolutely essential to if anyone listens to the way the you know, the way the results come out.
1: Yeah, and there we hit another problem—the multi-funder model, and perhaps two problems. But I think I agree that's the right structure in this—the European. Uh, um, disinformation fund is sort of intended to to work along those lines, although the the primary funder was Google, they're looking for other funders exactly to build that kind of structure and it's independent of the companies it's an institution that funds individual researchers two challenges inside the company and these are ones we're both familiar with (laughs) Uh, um, one one, I guess sort of cultural and the other legal (laughs) Uh, from a sort of cultural point of view again what you're trying to do often with that research money is set yourself apart and so what you should be doing is sitting down with the other companies and say, how do we collectively fund an institution that can deal with this problem?
0: Mm.
1: That kind of runs counter to like, how do how do I yeah. show that my company is a leader in this? Uh, and one of the ways I do that is I give money and nobody else is giving money. Therefore, I'm the good guy and they're the bad guys. And so that
0: multi-funder thing, I think, is challenged in a sense culturally by that competitive culture. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I think there's a point that you're making here that's absolutely essential, not just for funding academics, this collective action problem. Mm. In, in a lot of the sector, where, where you feel that it, you know, you're better off doing it alone. And if somebody else does it, you're not likely to join. So someone sets up the fund, someone sets up an institution to, um, to educate, somebody um, invests in figuring out if there's a good educational model you can do, and nobody else joins. And, and you're cheating yourself, uh, because if you had joined, you would actually have built something that could have changed views and really impacted opinion. But as long as everyone goes at it uh, alone, that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah.
1: Every, everyone creates their own one-stop shop. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I mean, you have
0: the, the, the oversight stuff. Yeah. That- was built yeah. within Facebook, but why, why didn't everyone else pull cool up and join? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if that had happened, would the world look different? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and I'm sure there are people in other companies hoping it would fail rather than thinking we should join. I mean, because that's what you do. Because that's what we would have done if I was in the company and somebody else has said it. Oh, a little bit of you's going like, I hope that fails. Yeah, <laughs> so, I hope it becomes really embarrassing for yeah. like,
0: and, and, and that's that's the, that collective action problem is really yeah. interesting because at some point an industry needs to mature to the point where they go, okay. Actually, they're not regulating companies, they're regulating industries. Companies is the wrong unit of analysis. If we're thinking about the regulatory futures, we should think about industries. So how do we make sure that we as an industry start to act responsibly? That's, a, you know, historically that's happened again and again and again in different industries, but it's a point of maturity that you're not quite there yet.
1: Exactly. Well, then that brings on to our second challenge, which, yes. which is the legal one, which maybe is potentially more substantive, but also it can be a fig leaf, which is competition law, acting as a cartel, etc. So, so, yes, I think, you know, if you could overcome the cultural barrier and say, four or five companies should get together and set up a joint fund to deal with x how do we make sure that that's not seen as kind of inappropriate behavior that it's not some kind of behind the scenes deal and and i think there are ways to do it and clearly if something's in the public interest setting something up that that um, uh, funds valuable work valuable research to look at it should be okay but you can see why when when we have worries about oligopolies uh, and, and cartel-like behavior between companies, which, which is sort of ongoing all the time, these complaints come in, the last thing you want is to say, ah, now they've, you know, a, a small group of companies have got together and they're trying to in some way corner the research market or drive the research market in a particular direction as a collective group. Yeah. Uh, and, and that there's no almost competition in company attitudes to research. Yeah. So I think that's superable. I don't think it's insuperable, unlike, you know, getting together to talk about pricing of products and things, which clearly <laughs> yes. is inappropriate. Yes. But you can see why at first blush, you know, a group of companies getting together to to come up with some common program in a sensitive area. Yeah, uh, And once you get away from it, something like misinformation to things like, you know what's the uh, what's the effect of e-commerce products on a society things like that you start then to get into areas that i think are
0: quite sensitive and this is why I think when you build these institutions or research programs or whenever you sort of approach a collective action problem like this, it's also okay to look across to other sectors. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're currently if you're in the say cloud business, I would definitely look into recruiting for research traditional industrial actors, for example, because it's going to affect them as well. And so I think there there are solutions here that we haven't tried yet. I know I haven't tried yet. And I think could be really interesting to think about how you can bring together a broad enough set of actors to build that credibility that it's not one sector speaking uh, on its own behalf. And it, I think there's plenty of stuff that can be done also on misinformation, you know, yeah. pooling up with, with others, but it requires that they want to, right? You pull up with publishers, for example, you pull up with academics and you have tech companies and yeah. you may have human rights groups and then you start to, I mean, it's, it, the is in designing that set of partnerships, yeah. which is really, really hard.
1: Well, I think it's such a, yeah, actually misinformation is a good example. Like the, the research question the sense is, look, if, if you think that you know, social harms are being caused by people believing wrong things, I don't know what that means, but they're believing wrong things. Actually, the research question does require you to say, are they believing the wrong things because of the impact of traditional media or social media or some mix thereof or other influences? And then, so you actually, something that sort of narrow and says, I'm just going to look at tech companies for a research question like that is inappropriate. So it should be a combined effort, but you can imagine, I mean, at the moment, you know, it's you know, chalk and cheese. that Tech companies will be saying, they do. You're like, well, it's still the traditional media that's causing all the problems, not us. And traditional media saying, we don't cause any problems. It's all of those, you know, tech companies whilst publishing articles saying Facebook causes cancer and syphilis. But we're not publishing misinformation. It's those guys over there doing it. And so it's really hard. But the societal interest is in in looking across all of the media. And there are some really good institutions that do that, 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 that take all inputs and try and understand the impact of all inputs. Uh, um, But I'd say I don't think there's as much funding (laughs) that's sort of going across all of the sectors. Uh, And it tends to, the research is, the the interest of the companies on either side, whether you're traditional media or or social media, you know, candidly you are, you have a direct interest in research that attacks the other lot and supports your lot. yeah, Like there's no point in denying it. That is your interest, yeah.
0: and 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 it's worthwhile here to pause and, and and just say a few words about how you should think about research as you're planning your policy work. Where does research fit in, and how can you use it to understand better where you are in your own situation? I think yeah. I think there's an interesting. Um, it's, it's not quite a value chain, but it's sort of a chain of events that is interesting to monitor. And it's that something that happens in research over here is then going to percolate into think tanks and other more political organizations. And then if the events dictate it, it's going to become political proposals. Yeah. So something can start out quite early as a research paper. And the research paper might be something you go like, oh, that, that doesn't sound very plausible. Uh, but then you see it getting picked up and, you know, think tanks are now talking about this. And suddenly something happens or there's a push and you see politicians pick it up as well. So one of the things that you should do if you're running a policy team and you're building an intelligence capability into it is to actually really look at the research. Yeah. Uh, go to ssrn.com, uh, search for your company's name first, if that's there, that's a good indication that you should read those papers. <laughs> and uh, have a look at what your the themes are because those emerging themes are likely to be what you're going to be discussing in a couple of years. And I'll give you a concrete example that I think is, is uh, illustrat- illustrative of this, and that is the right to be forgotten. Mm. So the right to be forgotten started out as a paper or a series of papers, really, by a brilliant researcher by the name of Victor Meyer uh, who then wrote a book called Delete. Yes. Uh, and. Uh, uh, that's a classic
1: text. We should probably come back
0: to it. We should come back to delete. I think that's a good idea. I am I am thanked in the uh, preface to that book, but my name has been mangled. <laughs> so I have issues. But anyway, yeah. it's, a really, it's a really good paper, really good book. Then it was picked up by think tanks. So we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is probably right. How do we deal with the fact that there's so much information about people out there? And then it was picked up by a series of different uh, campaigners and ended up becoming mm. a decision from the European Supreme Court. I don't think that the European um, Court of Justice would have made that decision uh, if they hadn't had that research mm. journey lead up to it. Okay. So I think have your, keep your eyes on the research, because it's actually a, a it's a noisy, but fairly good predictor yeah. of what you will be dealing with in a couple of years.
1: And, to, and another one is when the research is chiming with a genuine public concern. And that, and that's the thing. So I think um, companies think of things from their own angles, not the public angle. So in that case, you've got the research being published. And then you do have individuals who who believe they are suffering harm yeah. because of search results uh, and they believe that's unfair and they're going to raise it with politicians. So there's a real world, into uh, in the real world instances, there are complainants. And then there's a body of, of sort of research and thinking and theory that proposes an answer to those complaints. Yeah. And when those two things come together then then you've got action. There's
0: actually a much better articulation of the model. I agree, because mm-hmm. if you think about the, the Costea case, uh, that yeah. was exactly it. Yeah. It was individual harm combined with a uh, growing body of work that suggested that that harm could be and should be addressed within the legislation when uh, the court uh, drew that conclusion so i, I think that's that's a, it's in one way of thinking about research as you're uh, doing your actual policy work from a craft perspective is to look at it as a fairly interesting predictor of what will happen given your point yeah. where there is individual harm They yeah. come back to harm it's sort of one of our main themes it,
1: it is um, absolutely and it'll be the same in, in, and again you look at um, you know something like ch- child safety uh, uh, self-harming you know there are real world harms associated with self-harming there's a real interest in doing the research to try and understand the relationship between the media that people particularly young people are consuming in their experience of self-harm that's going to lead to something in the same way the right to be forgotten did the, the, you, and that's the sort of stuff you absolutely need to focus on we've got a real world yeah. harm and we got that and to be in a company and kind of go you know we, d- we don't think that there's much you know and companies do take that seriously, but it's, to a certain extent there, it's very easy to kind of go, well, you know, there are other things happening. It's not, it's not down to our content, our product, our services. Yeah. But if people are researching uh, and looking at different ways of dealing with uh, the content, that is going to feed into debate and that's going to feed into regulators or, or court cases and it's going to have a real world
0: impact. Yeah. And as a policy person, you're not reading the research for veracity or plausibility. You're reading it for traction yeah yeah exactly is I it saying
1: something well. that is going to be attractive to a policymaker who is looking to fix something which is a real problem yeah. and if there's a researcher giving them stuff that's that's useful credible plausible and provides some kind of solution then that then it's going to have significant impact
0: yeah, and there are a number of case studies like this that can be really interesting to to have a look at. For example, I think uh, anyone who traces the concept of search neutrality back will find a series of papers that were published in, I think, 2012 um, that predicted a lot of the discussion that then went into the DMA and the DSA about self-preferencing, for example. So the intellectual seeds of many of the legislative proposals that you're looking at now are probably being sown today, and you'll see the, the fruit of them in four to five years. So, so it's a, it's a really interesting resource for a policy team, and I think it's kind of underutilized because the research is sometimes felt to be you know, hyperlutin abstract, not necessarily connected to reality. But take the time and read it because yeah. it's going to pay off.
1: Well the, the whole debate around cookies and tracking, which is having a huge a real world impact on the revenue oh, of yes. companies like Meta who are you know, uh, not able to monetize as effectively as they used to be able to because there has been this pushback against cookies and tracking. And look, I think a lot of Belgian academics in particular are doing that for years. I was on the other side sort of being fairly dismissive. Cookies are essential. We need them. They're very important for, for all sorts of things on the internet, which is actually true. Yeah. But at the same time, people were building a case effectively to say the intrusiveness you know, is so severe that they were really focused on that going, this is how, this is the worst case scenario. If, if somebody were to take all this cookie information and really abuse it, these are all the bad things that they could do. and they're doing that. I mean, the research was credible. It was real. Yeah, uh, they did do that, and they they painted that scenario, uh, and that's impacts on policymakers and some companies, to an extent, arguably, apples, you know, chiming back is taking that research and is chiming back uh, the the those concerns when it implements technologies that seek to restrict in some way some of those tracking IDs. So so um yeah, the, that research. Again, we look at cookies, we look at the, the technical responses, and we look at the legislative responses, but there's a long history of research that led and fed into that.
0: Yeah, your research sites are essentially legislative telescopes. You should go there to figure out what happens next. So, so let's, let's flip this a bit. So, so um, walk someone through who's thinking about funding research, uh, what when they should do it, and yeah. when they shouldn't. So uh, someone comes to you and says, we have this issue. Uh, I'd like to fund a researcher because this is bonkers. I know this is not true. For example, I, I, I want to just fund research to show that uh, that X that's being claimed by these various yeah. groups is not the case. But how would you advise, I guess this happened to you. It happened to me plenty of times. Yeah. I'm sure it happened to you too. Well, what were your general reactions? I mean, I think sort of research
1: on tap is generally not going to work. So, I mean, general advice is is uh, go early. Mm-hmm. I mean, really go early.
0: To our earlier point. Yeah,
1: before you've had the problem. So, Kent, if you can be a little bit clairvoyant, well, you should be, that's part of your job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you should
1: be able to you know, <laughs> see what's coming down the track, build the relationships you need uh, uh, when when you're not in the middle of you know a raging fire, build relationships you need, uh, work on, on important research, start, start to make those contributions to the body of knowledge, uh and and do that sort of without a you know without it being something where you're just reacting to a problem your company has um so that's the first people right like look at the areas that you need to work that you're likely to need to work on over the next couple of years and build those relationships Now, don't wait until something happens.
0: I think that's a great point. And I think one way to frame that is say you need to make sure that you're not funding research where there's massive knowledge asymmetry between the company and the research community just because you think we know better. Because if you haven't even that asymmetry out and share the knowledge beforehand, the research is either just going to be not good. Or it's, it's going to build entirely on whatever you give the researchers and not credible. So so having a constant ongoing discussion with the research community is actually really important and, and often forgotten because researchers are not ministers. Yes. Uh, the research community is 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 one of your key stakeholders and you should always be reaching out to them.
1: Yeah. And then uh, I think the other sort of element of that is whether, well, who does it within the company? Again, we talk a lot about what policy should do and restrict itself and i actually think uh, policy people are the last people to decide who uh, you should be working with from a research point of view well that uh, they shouldn't be in that loop you should have people but who, who should do that well, i mean for
0: policy research you should because there is research that is policy relevant
1: yeah but i do think having a research team inside the company and again doing that earlier that we've seen different sort of flavors and connotations of that uh, and i think again they tend to be built sort of too late I think from an early stage, having a team that you work with very closely as a policy team, but who really understand the dynamics of the research world—they probably come themselves from the research world—they can just help you from blundering in uh, <laughs> and making mistakes. So you're doing it in partnership with them. You're not doing it solo. But in the same way that we've said, you know, you, you your policy team shouldn't be leading the response to competition authorities. You know, that should be legal team. Part of the team may work in partnership with them. Uh, We shouldn't be leading on working with the press. We work with our comms colleagues who lead on that. We have a lot of input, but ultimately they are the experts in their domain. So I think in the same way, and a classic mistake I think you can make is is underestimating the amount of domain expertise that is needed in any area. And research is one of those areas where that domain Mm -hmm. expertise is there, where you, again, candidly, you may... Um, pick the wrong people to work with. You may pick somebody who you think is really good because policy world, you see them; they go to all the policy events, they're always speaking. You start working with them, and then you find that in the academic world, they're not seen in the same way that you saw them, uh, and they may be an outlier to a certain extent. So again, I don't know that I'm not a real expert on who is credible in the policy world, in the research world. I'm expert on who's credible in the policy world, but not research world. And so I think having people inside your organization, either directly inside or people from outside who have some kind of advisory capacity, I think is essential. Policy making the decision on their own about where to go with research, I think, is very high risk,
0: it's interesting because you, you see some of this having some of this has happened historically IBM research for example is a, a well-established research organization within IBM they've done tons of things some of them uh, policy relevant for sure uh, and they've been quite efficient the other the other actor has been uh, good at doing what you describe is Microsoft with Microsoft yeah. Research Microsoft Research has I think interestingly managed to attract, a fair bit of policy researchers and legal researchers into yeah. the fold. So why why do you think that's... Is that happening, too, with the other big tech companies? Will we see Amazon research, Facebook research? I know Facebook research and Google research exist, but they, yeah. can, they, they have a slant towards the technological... Um, But Facebook research does a lot of social science research. too. They do, and
1: they've always been there doing it. Um, So so I think there are teams who, all the companies have those teams, and there is a bit of a revolving door, again, between some of the companies and some of the academic institutions, which in general terms is a good idea, that people should be moving between them and getting different experiences. We should always recognize some of the resentments. Clearly, the salary differential yeah uh is significant and again i think also causes some suspicion that people are i think most people move jobs selling because, out yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. they're people interested in the work that, yeah but there is a and, and potentially a resentment those who have gone over to the dark side yes. uh you know are, are gaining bigger salaries than those who stayed on the on the classic institutional side and so there are some issues there um i, I I think some of the areas that the tech company, the we should not the tech companies we just said uh, you're quite rightly the IBM and Microsoft are different, but let's say the the internet companies are dealing yeah. with. In some ways, they're um, more sensitive. I think uh, so. They sort of hit on it really sort of core societal sensitivities, um, very high profile. Then I think the IBM and Microsoft issues have generally hit. They're, they tend to be more. So they're industrial. They're around your industrial strategy, yeah. how society is evolving. They're not around content. And maybe that's the thing. It's content. It's it people might be
0: content. saying they're, they're, yeah. things
1: that makes it like super sensitive, or people indexing content that is super sensitive. Um, but I think there's also something else, which is that the you know, the the internet companies are building the aeroplane as they fly it mm. in many cases, and so they're they're so fast and the stuff they're building is moving so quickly that it's actually quite hard uh, to, to sort of establish those research timeframes that you need. You know, IBM sort of looking at the impact of the transition from mainframes to mini computers and then to PCs, like you have sort of reasonably long, I know mean, they do more than that, but you know, in a sense yeah. like the sort of classically, you've had these sort of reasonably long timescales. The stuff that blows up in in uh, in uh, internet Company world is so fast. I mean, you know, the the um, cryptocurrency thing—we can keep saying about it. so much has happened already. It's like several cycles of, of potential research have happened like so quickly now. Yeah. Uh, that it's really hard to get get your hands around it. So, I think that also tends to make it different. Some of the companies that you know. Could establish research departments would have gone, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> before before the I, thing, there's maturity necessary.
0: point here. I think a uh, tenure point when you've been around yeah. for long enough, you you can do it. I I also think there's another point that is uh, interesting, and you you touch on that, and that is how adjacent is the research to your business model's core. Yeah, because Microsoft doing research on privacy is like well. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, Facebook's research department putting out papers on privacy would be uh, interpreted to a large degree, I suspect, as as um, as so close to the business model core that uh, the credibility would be skewed.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Meta's not going to do research papers on how bad cookies are. Like, no, it wasn't going to happen. So somebody no. outside has to do that. Well, you're right. That's whereas IBM could do, or actually, Microsoft could do, yeah. you know, papers on how bad cookies are, and those would be interesting, but nothing to do with their, their sort of core business model. Right? So a lot of this stuff is so sensitive. But I think the other thing, I mean, before we, we leave this subject, I think t- the data question is also quite fundamental. Mm-hmm. And This is, again, it's content, but it's content and data, where if you're talking about your classic hardware, software platforms, uh, business software and hardware platforms, there's a lot less sensitivity around the data. There's a lot more you can share, and I think some of the real tensions and, and uh, issues that, that come up in the uh, modern tech company spaces is around the fact that their data is seen as uh, valuable. I mean, when, when people talk about data is the new oil, and oh, they look at—I <laughs> know we hate it—but <laughs> yeah. but their, their assumption is like, like that the data is extraordinarily valuable to them. And then are you going to be sharing your oil (laughs) with researchers uh, that you're going to be wanting to cling on to it? And and then there are some genuine sensitivities around that data that make it, I think, different. So you can't do the research without understanding what's happening on the platforms. You can't really look at what's happening on the platforms without very quickly, in most cases, stumbling into quite sensitive personal data. Uh, And how do we square that? And that's an issue that big tech platforms have. So, you know, Amazon, even, you know, people's purchasing patterns, uh, how they're behaving on an Amazon, people's search patterns on a Google, people's uh, uh, media consumption patterns on a Facebook or an Instagram or a TikTok. These are all super sensitive areas
0: yeah.
1: uh, that are quite different. And, and, and again, I don't think we've got uh, uh, a sort of steady state in terms of what the rules should be for access to that data, where it's for genuine research purposes. And
0: so, so we wind it back to the young, mm. uh, the, the young, the team member is asking you. You know, I want to do research on this particular thing. The thing, first thing you tell them is, I think if there is like an understanding in the community about this, and you have been spending time with them, and you think that that is the sort of the case, then what's the next question? Is the next question do you think that we have data that we're willing to share that would be meaningful for us to build this out so we don't just ask them go do research on whatever they could otherwise have found equally well somewhere else
1: yeah so i think you will find yourself as a policy person like fighting constant battles over the fact that you've met somebody externally or you know there are people externally you think would do good research but people internally don't want to let the data go and that, so they can be very good. There are a variety of different reasons for that. Sometimes it's because the data isn't there. People assume the data is there. They assume you're better at collecting data than you are. Sometimes it's because the data is there, but it's poor quality, yeah. and people don't want to release stuff they can't rely on the quality of. And actually, there have been instances where companies released data, and it's turned out to have been poor quality, and that's kind of backfired. Yeah. Uh, and it could be poor quality out of a- by accident. Like you know, it's not because they were malign or they were trying to hide something. Uh, and sometimes it will be because you you can see the data and you can see there's something embarrassing in there.
0: yeah.
1: And you don't want other people to see the embarrassing thing that you think exists within the data. Or you just don't know, actually. In some cases, it's like, well, you know, we can't let them do the research until we've done the research. Yes. Because <laughs> yes, we really <laughs> need to be the first that. people to understand whether X is causing harm. The last thing we want is somebody else to find out that X is causing harm before we do and for us to be reacting to it. And we haven't got time to find out if X is causing harm, therefore, we can't allow them to have the data or let them do it. So I think just, yes, I think fighting those battles or trying to understand where the limits are in the company, trying to understand whose permission you need to create better access to data. And I think actually, candidly, understanding that you're not gonna win. Uh, Mm. uh, The secrecy will not win. No. And we're seeing that right now, and we're entering potentially a whole new world because under both the Online Safety Bill in the UK, the European Digital Services Act, and other bits of legislation around the world, if you look at legislation that's geared towards safety, it almost invariably has some clauses that say, and the regulator shall be able to order companies to share data with researchers so and all the regulations. Yeah. Competition policy and
0: competition law as well. I think.
1: So in the end, you're going to have to share it. Yeah. And again, like get there earlier. Actually, you know, Twitter is a good example. Twitter has a researcher API. It, it's different in the sense that there's an underlying assumption that Twitter data is public yeah, uh, by and large. So it's in, a, it's in a different place. But the fact that they've got a researcher API, they've actually got very good information they provide to researchers, it weirdly means a lot of research is done on Twitter. And then sometimes interpreted as being about other platforms yes uh, but the twitter research base is is quite good and i think i think that's a nice place to aspire to be uh, where you have you know a really robust api where you've got sensitive personal data you need a whole, whole set of processes in place that make sure that the requesting party the researcher and the company are complying with all their legal obligations non trivial but yeah. again start working on that just just as a company going can't have it data protection. <laughs> like we no one likes that. And particularly no one likes an American tech company going can't have it data protection. So what's the what's the mechanism you need in order to get past that? Is it pseudonymization, anonymization, uh, uh, legal
0: commitments Agreements, that people sign up to which will not yes, sit exactly. well with the research community yeah. because you want to be open about your sources and make your research repli- so you R- replicable. You yeah.
1: yeah, but if we all, but we should at least try and understand what the rules of the game are. We yeah. want the questions answered. So what is it within all of this constraints of law that we'll get there? And again, this new wave of legislation is going to force us to get there because yeah. the, you know Brussels is saying uh, we want you to keep people's personal data safe and we're putting very strict obligations on you but brussels is also saying and we want you to share data with researchers for these other purposes and so brussels ultimately the different bits of the institutions there the european data protection board and the european commission in its guise a safety regulator they're going to have to square all of this and come up with a framework that allows that data to be shared but i say i i just think like you can fight off openness for a period of time but if there is that real public interest yeah, good research being done and the research is answering a real public interest question yeah Sooner or later, <laughs> you either going to have to provide the data, or government's going to force you and to provide the And so, it's data. probably
0: better for you because you will then be able to share the data with more people, which means that you're not going to have just one perspective on the data. Because yeah. ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, we're talking about research as if it's a, a sort of magic way to understand what the world looks like. But research is dependent on research design, on having the right mental model, on being really clear about what it is, what it is that you're trying to research, figuring out if your questions are the right ones. I mean, there's there's plenty of bad research yeah and so in some way you're incentivized to actually figure out how you can design your data and make your data available to enable the best kind of research because if you can um, at some point you just have to look yourself hard in the mirror and say if we do research on this particular thing do i think i'm on the right side of history and in in many cases i actually think that you can say you are Hmm. because this technology is going to have benefits it's going to have you know it's going to lead to harm as well but it's going to have benefits and if both are reflected in a good way then we can actually make a better decision as a society so there's yeah. there's something here about sort of about designing the way that the research community interacts with your company and your data that can actually be helpful long term. I think yeah.
1: so. To mangle, mangle a well-known American phrase, the answer to bad research isn't no research; it's good research. Exactly right. Yeah. So yes, right? we need more research. More research. More, is research more research. Exactly. Is the answer to bad research. So yes, and uh, and I think that certainly that's where I came from, and my instincts say that's true. And yes. so there may be again in the field there may be some researchers you're not comfortable with, who you feel are very partisan as a company. And because we should you. talk
0: about them too. There are people out there who are, who because there's demand structure here, right? Mm. There's a demand for academics who uh, who are uh, competitive and uh, who uh, are, uh, for lack of a better term, they, they are very um, Good at finding uh, formulations and hmm. language that that sort of strikes at uh, big companies or big tech companies, and and there's a demand for that kind of academic persona, or rather for that kind of public intellectual, because it's not in their academic capacity as much as in their public intellectual capacity, and that and that creates, I think, some part of the tension with. Companies that that you know that their academics are doing really good work, but then you know that some of them slide over into the public intellectuals category, where they're opining on all kinds of things that have nothing to do with their work as well. Yeah. So there is a tension there in terms of demand. There
1: is, but then the 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 risk is that you then again go back into your bunker, yeah, uh, and and it's a and natural. They're the only voices, right? And they're but, the only voices. So you yeah. somehow and uh, uh, they go back the conundrum of like, well, how do we get other more balanced voices out there? Yeah. But, so, that you can't, you, know, you 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 can't make that happen too obviously because you're not you you know you're funding the other side of the public intellectual. The person is going to kind of put the other argument. I think you ultimately do just have to have faith in academic rigor and that yeah. if enough research is done, it will. It will land in the right place and come to the right conclusions. And the the truth will out, ultimately. I mean, that's what you have to believe, that if if enough researchers look at it and that the mechanism will work, that the person who's, who's done the bad methodology because they were partisan and they were trying to prove a particular point, someone's going to come along, contradict and compound their research and the whole community is going to say, "Yes, you're right. That was that was you're, that was a bad paper. This one supersedes it. This is now our understanding." And this is
0: happening faster and faster and faster. The reason the tobacco industry could continue to produce doubt for so long was that there wasn't such a vibrant um, community of scientists and people debating this and policy researchers, etc. So I think the the idea that as a as a company you can produce doubt for long enough to avoid regulatory intervention is it's simply not true anymore no, because no. the doubt that you can possibly produce, if you want to go down that bad path of the tobacco companies, is simply not going to cut it. It's, you can't. I don't think that's even if people suspect that that is what some companies are doing. I don't think that actually works. Yes, and we,
1: we should know. We don't actually think big tech is tobacco, but no, but uh, but, but the point being that But I the think te- a lot of people would make that. They would make that assumption. Yeah, yeah. We don't think that's. Yeah, great. no, and so actually, so to build that analogy, actually, in the way that the. Tobacco companies were were um, funding voices who would create doubt. In a sense, what the tech companies need to do is, or well, our belief is, if they if they if they do fund sufficient voices, the truth will come through. And the truth is much more mixed picture. Yeah. Um, tobacco is sort of quite clearly like it's always bad. Yes, <laughs> there, isn't a, there isn't a good side to tobacco. Whereas I think what you've got with um, uh, a lot of the new tech platforms that come out is a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, it delivers some good. It delivers some harm. And and actually that. Again, means you've got to have lots of research from lots of different angles. You can't just yeah. take one piece of it, and that and the risk in some cases is like we're only looking at, you know, nicotine. <laughs> we're only looking at tar. No, you've got to you got to look at everything. And there are some good products out there, and some bad products, and some good aspects, and bad aspects.
0: So, uh, one final perspective. Then we talked mm. about the, the policy team perspective, about the academia, the problems, the tensions. So, assume uh, um, uh, an up and coming researcher comes to you and. Asks a question. They've uh, just been offered a million dollars to go do a research project for a large tech company. And they're currently at, say, a think tank or some kind of independent institution. Uh, this would allow them to concentrate on an issue they think is really important for one or two years. They're very enticed by the idea, but they want to ask you is it a good idea for me to take this money?
1: Yeah. So I. I, I would say yes, <laughs> generally. I mean, if the research is genuinely important and if you are confident that the company is going to be sufficiently their hands on, I guess that's the question. Like you, the terms of the contract are critical. If yes. the contract says you are now entirely independent, that's fine. If you think they're going to be bothering you, that's then then that's the problem. So and let's you want the
0: contract the to actually be openly available. So yeah. one of the things you should negotiate is that you can show the contract to whoever asks.
1: Exactly. So that's the baseline for do, do you take about there's a secondary question, which is what are your peers gonna think and say? And that's probably down to the individual. Like if you've got sufficient credibility, uh your peers are gonna say, Oh, clever. Jane, <laughs> she's yes. taking the tech company for a ride because we know that she's going to publish really good critical work <laughs> yeah. um, it, it may be in another circumstance that you're you're not, you're, you're at a stage in your career where you might have to worry that people are going to see you as being bought out but that's a very, I think, individual and and sort of personal decision as to where you want to go with your career. But
0: and how nice peers you have too, because there are many nice peers day. that will take the opportunity in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. but there is a
1: huge amount, which again, not, not a huge amount of money is going into research to all sorts of institutions with very good, very legitimate, you know, researchers that everybody respects. So they are taking that money and doing good work with it. And again, we have to come back to this core question, like if not <laughs> the tech companies, who is going to pay for the research of the impact of tech on society? The only other options are government, And government's got some funds uh, but I don't think many people at this time would say this is the number one priority or the academic institutions themselves again they're struggling so you know if you want the research done it's government it's academic institutions or it's the tech companies so the best solution is for that bright young researcher to be able to take tech company money to research stuff that's relevant to them, as long as, as you say, it's an open contract, it's something that everybody understands that they're not being influenced inappropriately by it. Uh, And I guess to a certain extent, as long as they personally feel that their reputation is not going to devalue their work when they publish the stuff that, you know, it's not going to land in the way that they want it to land just because of the fact of the money.
0: Yeah. That's good advice. So with that, uh, I think we can cut it to a close. Research is going to become even more important in the coming years, I think. We'll see much more of it when it comes to technology, society, and the impact on us as as individuals. So uh, you can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you. Thanks for listening and tune in for our next episode.